Hey friends, before we dive into the episode, I've got something for healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals, if you're locuming or going to locum, navigating it through multiple agents and agencies can be stressful. Back and forth emails and timesheets aren't needed in this era. What if there was an app where you could see the shift, the total pay, the hours and request to book it there and then? Well, there is. Locum's Nest connects healthcare professionals digitally to the NHS staff bank. The app connects already over 50,000 healthcare professionals to vacant work in over 50 NHS trusts and growing. Check it out yourself. That's Locum Nest. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we're with another amazing guest. We have with us Ollie, who I'm sure many of you know already, who's an academic foundation doctor working in Newcastle. He went to Warwick Medical School, same place where I did my foundation training. He's got interesting clinical neurosciences, neurosurgery, and does these awesome hand-drawn anatomy videos on YouTube, and more recently one. Um, the BMA role. Massive, massive pleasure to have you on the show. Ali. Welcome How are to you? the show. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, guys. It's <laughs> as a listener for so long, it's it's lovely to actually be here. No, amazing. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, we've been meaning to um, get you on the show to share your story. You've done before we go into you are doing such incredible work and kind of raising awareness for a lot of issues and a lot of. I want to say controversy, but a lot of things people don't necessarily understand. And you articulate issues very well mm. for the wider community, even the general public. Um, so we'll come to that later. But as with all our guests, we'd like to take it back all the way to the very beginning. Mm. So young Oli, uh, tell us about your journey into medicine, kind of going to work medical school. Sure. Okay. I'll, tr- I'll try and keep it brief because it's not very interesting. <laughs> but... Um... I suppose the, the the quick way to summarize it, I, you know, was one of those one of those kids who enjoyed science at school, sort of thought about doing medicine from an early age, as you have to, to even to even get in when you're 18. So uh, sort of 14, 15, whenever you decide you might want to be a doctor. I then absolutely chaotically bombed my A-levels in, in quite spectacular fashion, as as lots of people do. Um and ended up going through clearing actually i i didn't actually even apply to university uh, after my a levels um because i knew that my a levels were so far away from allowing me to do medicine uh had a lot of chats with my uh sixth form uh staff and people like that about it and had a look on clearing and uh there was the opportunity to go and do a molecular biology degree at newcastle um, which is where I am now. So I decided in the absence of of kind of anything better to do and not really having any structure ahead of me, I went and did that. Uh, decided, well, had to decide at the end of that whether or not I was going to kind of reaffirm medicine and, and try for it again or whether I was going to start a PhD uh, as one had been offered at this point. I actually accepted the PhD uh, because they required a yes before I heard back from medical school, um, as is the way things go anyway, ended up getting the offer for medical school, politely extracted myself from the PhD, uh, which which is going to be in synthetic biology, actually, a very interesting area of genetic engineering. Uh, anyway, so then went away and did my, my four years at Warwick Medical School, um, 
which was an intense time, you know, accelerated medical degree is, is, is intense. And then I've started my foundation training here in Newcastle, come, come back full circle and, uh, staring down the end of FY1 now ARCP in six amazing. days. Ooh, amazing. Amazing. That is, that is a tense period. Just going back to when you started studied, you know, at Newcastle Medical Biology, not got into medicine, yeah. how were you feeling at the time? Were you kind of still motivated to come back to medicine or were you kind of taking on the chin and kind of moving on? I, I mean, I'm struggling to remember back because this is now 10, mm. 10 years ago. A long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I think... I've always, I think, tried to be quite practical, right? So I knew in some vague sense that graduate entry medicine was a, th was a thing. And the thing is, if I could go back and, and tell myself, you know, go back in time, I probably wouldn't have advised myself to go and do a degree. I think I would have said, stick it out and repeat your A-levels. But, but, you know, didn't have that kind of knowledge or experience at the time and so I tried to choose something that would be fairly industrially focused and at least maybe have a job at the other end of it um, as the course I did in Newcastle was was very clearly geared towards getting people into the biotech sort of industry. Mm -hmm. ah. a, a question for you Ollie so whilst now in medicine at Warwick because of a, a lot of our listeners they might be doing other degrees thinking about medicine thinking about the accelerated course in particular mm. you said it's quite intense what do you mean by what's what was your experience like through med school give them some insight the real choke point I think with with the accelerated program at least the one that Warwick runs is that most places obviously mm. run a five or six year, you know, standard medical program, plus or minus intercalation. Mm. Um, and then some subset of medical schools will run a graduate entry scheme, which condenses some amount of that material. And you tend to join in year two or year three or however it is that, that they divide up their curriculum. What's interesting about places like Warwick and Swansea is that they obviously have a tailor-made curriculum for four years. It's not mm. a condensed version mm. of a five-year program. And the way that Warwick achieves that is basically by cramming all of the preclinical material into a single academic year. Ouch. Yeah, exactly. Ouch, which is, uh, <laughs> which is an experience. And not only that, but it's also all of your... Uh, so, so maybe everything that would be done in the first couple of years of a standard medical program combined with all of your mm. clinical exams, you, you know, or any clinical exam and procedure that you might, uh, that you might also learn, yeah. all of that is done in the first year. And it's a single high stakes exam at the end, which tests like everything. <laughs> I think, yeah, I remember meeting a lot of the work med school students while working um, in Coventry. And it was intense. Like your summer holidays are shortened, the exams are rough, they're quite tough. Um, it is. It's like credit to people that do graduate entry medicine because mm. I know I'm the type of person. If I didn't get into medicine the first time round, I wouldn't have the the intrinsic motivation to apply again. Like I'm those guys that just got in somehow, skin of my teeth, and kind of stuck it through. But it requires a lot more determination, motivation to kind of go through it. Or if you could go back to the younger Ollie now, would you say 
uh, yes, the accelerated program again, or would you say uh, do the extra, do the extra year and just go for the conventional five-year course? I would always. I mean, I think you have to be practical now and think about things like money and time and lost earnings and things. Yeah. I think now mm. I I would always, always say if you are in the ability, ability if you have the ability to redo mm. your A-levels and go into a standard track five-year program for which you will yes. receive funding, that that yeah. is always, always the better option because A, it's less competitive you know, graduate entry medicine mm. is brutally mm. competitive to get into and it will cost mm. you less in the long run. Yeah. And I, I yeah. think that that's the thing. It's, it's at the time, I don't think it's the advice that I would have liked to receive. I'm sure I probably would have involved yeah. it as a, as a 17 yeah. or 18 year old, but, but practically that is my advice now looking back. No, amazing. Um, having done medicine, at medical school and now being a junior doctor coming up to the end of F1 tell us about what you thought being a doctor is going to be like to what it actually yeah. is <laughs> being a doctor like you know I'm going with the question yeah yeah I could see you, you guys looking at me conspiratorially um I think this is one of the really hard things right isn't it like I'm sure you guys would maybe agree that even though I think at, at the point where you apply to medical school, you think you know what it's going to be like and what being a med student will be like and what being a doctor is like. And you almost, I feel like you have to convince your interviewer that you understand. And I look back now and I think I had no idea. Like I had no idea what I was talking about. And I don't think anybody else does either. Um, I think maybe this is maybe this is an unpopular opinion i do actually think that the skills and attributes that are tested for in medical applications are valuable and they are the skills that i find myself using um but perhaps not in the way that i expected to use them you know my job this year has been probably half secretarial if you like sort of administrative and then half you know, doing, doing clinical medicine, but the things that I find that the things that make the job hard are not really anything to do with patients. It's more the, the NHS and the bureaucracy and the, all of the other stuff, um, and negotiating with the people. fax machine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's why I think that it's more about like the ability to, the ability to work out how to solve a problem when you have never encountered it before or negotiating with another staff member to get the best outcome for a patient like it, it those skills are actually important just you don't tend to deploy them mm. in, in the way that you would think yeah, they're super no definitely there's that's super important and i think there's a disparity in terms of the clinical side of medicine it really is quite similar to medical school you learn how to examine patients you learn the management and a lot of the stuff you learn in the job but the bit that never gets taught is the communicating with the nurses, the referrals, mm. the way the system works, what it's like to actually be a doctor. Mm. The reason I asked the question is there's a lot of doctors that reach out to us and they say, how can we teach existing medical students or give them an insight into the reality of what it's like to work as a junior doctor, ignoring the, the clinical side of things? So I don't know if you have any advice or any tips for those doctors that want to kind of 
we want to be transparent in what we do, right? And you don't want to kind of silver line and be like, oh, no, it's all roses and daisies when it's not. What do you think they can do to kind of give them the reality of it all? It's hard, isn't it? Because you don't want to... You don't want to place students in situations in which they're uncomfortable or or which are um sort of threatening to them in any way but but thinking back you know across <laughs> yeah, the yeah. last year the the times when i've actually had problems as a as a new junior doctor yeah. and i felt like i wasn't prepared for this situation it's things like you know you you uh ask one of your nursing colleagues to maybe give a, a medicine and they're not happy to give it for whatever reason. So what yeah. do you do now? Because you're, mm. the model mm. to which you have been trained has just broken down, hasn't it? Or thinking <laughs> yeah. about something like the SJT, you know, it'll always say, you know, go up the chain of command and ask for help. And I remember on call yeah. ringing the most senior figure available for help out of hours and they shouted at me and put the phone down. <laughs> Oh wow! And, <laughs> oh my god! And and it, it's situations like that, right? It's it's situations where the the models to which you are taught as a medical school they make lots of assumptions about the ways that people behave, like as if all of your colleagues and you are going to behave as perfect rational agents within a system, but that's just not true. Or you have. I don't know, a patient who has become aggressive, you know, and, and is going to become physically violent with you and not accept their, well, not, not accept, but maybe they don't understand the treatment plan or they don't, you know, you say, I think this medicine would be the best thing. And they say, well, tough, I'm not taking it and I want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's all of these <laughs> edge cases. No, definitely. It really is one of those things you learn on the job medicine and being a good doctor is something you learn on the job and i don't think medical ever really prepares you for that and i think every doctor would say the same saying this and kind of all the the things that have come up recently i do genuinely believe it's probably one of the best jobs in the mm. world uh, what are some of your like pleasant experiences what are memorable moments of your f1 journey because i know you're coming to an end you guys are going to be rotating mm. f2 so i think it'd be quite nice to kind of share those moments with us yeah and it's it's fairly fresh in my mind actually because i i made a video fairly recently on uh well as as you alluded to before i've I talk about sometimes some quite controversial things and i had a lot of students commenting <laughs> and sort of saying you know you're you're your stuff has been very sort of doom and gloom recently. Like, can you talk about yeah. some of the things that you actually like about your job? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to start strong. I think the single biggest thing about my job that I love, and it's really vindicating because when I, when I had to decide to leave this PhD and go to a more patient facing role, instead of being a pure academic, it was because I felt that need to work with people and to communicate with people and that science communication -y challenge of trying to explain someone's heart attack to them or this test that we're going to do or the, the complex autoimmune diagnosis or whatever. And that that is the part of my job that, that I love. And I'm sure you guys, obviously, as, as doctors, I'm sure you get that. Um, so there's that, I think there's the element that there is kind of no end to what you can learn ever because even 
even after finishing medical school, no two doctors will have a similar experience after that because you only work a limited set of jobs, obviously, and thus everybody has their own knowledge and we become specialized, it feels so quickly. And even within your domain of interest, there's always, you know, the number of subspecialties and how interested people can be in particular things. I love that. The idea that there is always something you can do to upskill yourself. Um, and it's actually nice in a way to be able, I think, to take ownership for your decisions. Sometimes obviously, you know, as, as a junior, I'm very acutely aware that we sometimes get things right. Sometimes we get things wrong, but, but actually whether you get it right or whether you get it wrong, sort of saying, you know, this, this was my decision and I stand by it, whether or not it turns out to be ultimately the right thing. I made a decision with the information I had and that's obviously something yeah. uh, something I hope I'm going to get better at <laughs> as we go. Yeah. <laughs> but, but when you get it right, no. it's so satisfying. No. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And it's nice to still hear doctors speak so fondly of the profession because all you need to do is go on social media, Twitter, and you see, it, it seems like every other day I'm seeing people leave the profession. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing people kind of quitting. Um, and the thing that I do want to say to listeners is we've met people that have left medicine to become a consultant or an analyst and the grass is not always green on the other side. They, they mm. hate it. The satisfaction and fulfillment you get for something as mundane as putting a catheter into someone with urinary yeah. retention or whatever it may be is second to none. At least you're chained to a desk. We have the autonomy. What I say is maybe there are days where you don't get a break, but there are days where you get extended breaks and you get to, walk around the hospital and meet fellow colleagues and if there's an interesting case on a different ward you can go and see those patients right like you have a lot of autonomy more than mm. people realize and i think sometimes i just wish people would understand that rather than kind of be so quick to leave and they i think maybe it's a victim of the podcast itself. we do bring on people outside of medicine and they're like you know they've done it how do we do it <laughs> and you're like do you know what just give it a chance do you know what i know you're thinking about leaving medical school graduating and leaving medicine and not doing a single day of f1 mm. what are your thoughts on that which is another topic because you may have seen it people don't even want to mm. do a single day of f1 yeah it's i don't know how quickly this idea has kind of maybe it's all the stuff that's going on with pay and pensions and all the rest of it but even when i was at medical school and i only graduated in summer of 2021 you know not not recently this idea of going through medical school and not doing a single day of F1, like I don't think I knew a single person who would kind of, who who would do that. I mean, certainly it was always discussed that I think you should, you should do your F1 and F2, you know, finish the foundation program because that gives you the space. If you want to go and try other things, you can do that, but then you can always come back and work as an SHO or go into training or whatever. Um, and especially if, you know, if you just came back and you wanted to work as a locum SHO for six months or whatever, like that's a really mm -hmm. significant amount of earning potential to have in the bank. Absolutely. Um, what, what, Ollie, what do you think about, what do you think about why the reasons underlying why say the people who do complete F1 and F2, mm -hmm. um, or even are in a training pathway, why they are leaving training programs altogether what's 
pushing them from the NHS? What's pulling them away? Uh, what just what's your view on that? I, I'm sure you guys feel this more acutely than I do, being being more senior. But um, it's those things that I think have direct impact on quality of life, right? And and future impact. I mean, the rates the rates that you get paid for what doctors do. This is discounting, obviously, locums and things. This is assuming a standard workday rate are simply nowhere near enough. Like, and I think people are are very rapidly waking up to that as employees, which is which is a good thing. Um, you know, why why would I do this for fifteen pounds an hour or whatever when I can go and do something else for fifteen pounds an hour that is much less emotionally and mentally taxing? So I suppose there's 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 that. There's everything else. Obviously, there's the the portfolio stuff, the research, the audits, the going to conferences, the networking, all of this, the toll that that stuff takes. You know, certainly for me, virtually all my annual leave is spent doing this stuff, such only for the chance to continue working in the job that I already do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Silly, like, I don't know, if, before we hit record, you mentioned for the kind of privilege of listeners, you had to go back into work yeah. for something that was left like it's was do you know what the funny thing we're so used to it we didn't even bat an eyelid yeah right? <laughs> you told us this and it was normal right was like, yeah just... I, i've had guys going on a saturday morning to do an mdt meeting which the consultant goes and presents right but if i were to say that to my colleagues they will be an up yeah they will be are you crazy like mm. they need to pay you for that like we're so like i don't know if the word is institutionalized or mm. we've just come to accept it but it's obscene Uh, something that Ollie said though, Ollie said that people were waking up. Why do you think? So I've noticed this actually. Whilst at med school, there wasn't so much of a hoo ha mm. online and stuff. People weren't really talking about it. But it seems like sleeping giants, as you said, are waking up. We're now talking about money. I remember we weren't talking yeah. about money several years ago. We weren't talking about annual leave being very restricted, very broken. If you had nine days, you could only take it. This, mm. that, and the other day, you couldn't take it on certain days. Um, we accepted rotors being given a week before. <laughs> so, why is it? What do you think's changed that we're now willing to say, "Hold on a minute, that's not really right." What, what's changed? I think social media has a big part to play in that. I mean, we are. I think doctors were already and and medical students. You know, I'm talking about the whole medical sort of stream. We were already quite tribalistic obviously in in what we do and i think when you get i mean I, i'm going to highlight the reddit community the junior doctors uk to, to kind of illustrate this and thinking very recently about the discussions about pay and the recent elections to the the bma council and this whole push for pay restoration that that came purely from from a small group of of unhappy doctors on on reddit you know and now think they've that group has gotten 25 plus or minus a few candidates elected to the highest level of their own trade union in in a matter of months <laughs> you know what's interesting what i like about you Oli, is there's a lot of people that are out here complaining out here highlighting the issues and then there's very few people that actually go about making a change, actually go about doing something about it. Whereas with your campaign for pay restoration, trying to get elected to the BMA, you now are in a position where you can make a difference. 
you can kind of do something about it, right? Rather than kind of sitting on the sidelines and always commenting. Um, tell us about that process. Tell us what you want you want to achieve with the BMA. How does it work? What is the BMA course? Yeah. Funnily enough, a lot of people don't even know the BMA no. exists. No. Um, <laughs> Which I'm sure you know, right? They need to work on their marketing and branding, man. No, they do. It's a, big, it's a big problem, and this is one of the discussions. But for those listening, especially if you're a medical student listening, because yeah. this is important for you, even though it doesn't feel like it. So the BMA is one of the several trade unions that is authorized under law to, to campaign for kind of the best interests of doctors in the UK. And that mm. is so not only junior doctors, but also consultants and medical students as well. And this is something that I, I want to make sure we highlight here is that if you're a medical student, even if you are three or four years away from graduating, especially if you're less than four years away from graduating, which feels like a long time, but mm. given that the BMA Council, for example, the, the body to which I've just been elected, we hold our positions for four years. And so that the decisions that come about as a result of the meetings we have, or indeed groups like the Junior Doctors Committee, who are the group that negotiates your pay and your contracts, those people, you know, have, have a lot of power to affect in positive or negative ways your pay. And so even if you're not politically engaged or interested, I think it's just being aware that this is the group of people that effectively is in charge of how much you get paid, obviously subject to negotiation with the government. But, but I think it's, you know, looking at the junior doctor contract that exists right now, the one that governs how much yeah. I am paid and the one that governs which the new group of doctors will be paid. That was all determined by the negotiations that took place in 2016 when we had the junior doctors strikes, um, yeah. which were obviously set yeah. up by the BMA. And so this, this stuff is real. So even if you're not interested, it affects you directly. Definitely, Absolutely. definitely. Thank you for highlighting that. I think while at medical school, you're wrapped up in this bubble and it's a very safe bubble and you never privy to the issues that you face as soon as you graduate because you all of a sudden you're not in medical school you're not with your friends and you know people anymore and then these are real issues and it does like you said affect your quality of life and mm. i know it doesn't seem like a while you're at medical school and you're a medical student but and i i wish i paid more heed to it earlier on i was a bit more clued up about it and um, you always hear about the gmc and but you never hear about the BMA, you never hear about the junior doctors forums and all of these things that are taking place. And medical students can attend those and it is important to to um, partake in those conversations. Tell me, while talking about the, the pay restoration, the video you, you released was incredible. It was very good, very succinctly explaining the situation at hand. Uh, tell us about, so we're changing tax altogether. Tell us about this YouTube journey. Mm. Mm. So how does... <laughs> an individual you know driven you know pay restoration youtube it's like a different skill set altogether right mm. i don't know if, to, if i'm supposed to call you a content creator now but tell us about that about just the whole why get into content creation the youtube yeah. content creation yeah it's a, yeah sure it's quite interesting uh, yeah i mean again to keep it to keep it succinct because it's fairly boring um the whole reason that i started it 
was to highlight the fact that graduate entry medicine was a thing because certainly when I applied for it in 2016 now um it still wasn't really a talked about thing or, or rather there wasn't much information available online and usually if there was it was behind some sort of paywall um so I just decided that I was going to, you know what, record, make regular videos, record what I was doing to show people that it's not only kind of possible to highlight that if you're in another career or doing something else, that medicine is still an option and this is how you do it. And this is what the experience is like from somebody who's going through it. And it's something that I, you know, I plan on keeping going. It's continued as I've gone into practice and stuff, but Certainly as I got into medical school, I realized obviously that it is a tool for things like medical education and uh, widening access to medicine in other ways and, and highlighting important uh, topics to people. You know, you, you get a group of people that, well, what I find with YouTube, and I'm sure that you guys will be the same with your podcast, is that people invest in personalities, right? They don't they don't tend to, it's not really about investing in a platform. The reason that people consume the content they watch is that they're invested in the people that run whatever it is that they watch. And so that obviously if can be a vehicle for good and bad, I think, because I could just as easily, if I wanted, start shilling weight loss tablets and, you know, um, uh, ivermectin you know for covid and things like that if i wanted and people would listen especially once you have the label doctor in front of your name um but i, I think there's there's an ethical responsibility to to use your platform if you like for good i think and and it it serves as an opportunity to educate the wider public and, and groups like medical students about things that they wouldn't normally perhaps consider. Yeah, mm. no, definitely. I think just before I go to the next question, you're at a point now where you have tens of thousands of followers and subscribers on YouTube. As you mentioned, it is a vehicle for good. At the same time, by nature, you do receive hate comments. Mm. People may not necessarily agree with what you say, we're human. Mm. We we get upset. We don't like it. I've been at the receiving end of comments like that. Tell us a bit about that. How do you deal with it? What can other aspiring medical YouTubers do? Because the last thing I want to do is people go on YouTube and they're super excited and they get a few nasty comments and it kind of takes a hit on their confidence yeah. and their mental health. So tell us mm. a bit about that, Oli. Well, I'm going to draw an analog actually to working in the NHS about what I was talking about with people people not behaving as as rational agents and then i'll revisit the youtube thing but imagine that you know you're a fresh-faced new f1 and this happens all the time where you you don't really know what you're doing and your consultant says all right i want you to get a scan for for this person and then you go ahead and you ring the radiologist and the radiologist chews you out and calls you an idiot and basically like don't waste my time and then puts the phone down and in the moment, obviously, a huge hit to your confidence, even though it wasn't, I mean, it might have been your fault, but you you weren't to know um, in the moment. And so 
I think you quite quickly learn to develop a thick skin or perhaps to realize that just because that radiologist was mean to you or whatever, it, it doesn't mean you're a bad clinician. It just necessarily means that maybe something about what you did was not what they were expecting, or maybe they were having a bad day or, or whatever. There's lots of reasons and you learn to tune it out. Coming back to the YouTube comments thing, the first thing to say is that it's unavoidable. The internet is is effectively a bit of a no man's land, isn't it? It's a, it's a, a, a bit of a... Because everything's anonymous and there will always be trolls, a combination of those two things. And not only trolls, but people who might genuinely have something negative to say about your content, which is, of course, a possibility that that I think we have to entertain, um, you are going to receive negative comments. And especially the more attention and views and stuff you get, the more of them you will receive, especially if you publish about contentious things like COVID vaccines, which are where most of mine <laughs> come from. Um, and I'm sure, secondarily to that, that this affects certain groups of people more than others you know i'm a straight white guy who makes videos and i probably therefore well almost certainly do receive less horrible comments than my colleagues who are female or ethnic minorities or whatever and they have their own um struggles in this area on top of the background rate of stuff but so the first thing i think to say is to come to terms that come to terms with the idea that there is no escaping it and it will always exist unless you turn to choose comment, unless you choose to turn comments off, which isn't something that I would recommend. Um, and then I think there's a, because it's easy for me to say, you know, you've got to be thick skinned and stuff like that, but you've got to maybe decide for yourself how much of it you can tolerate and what you were willing to, to tolerate because like I say, it will always be there and how you choose to cope with it is up to you. Um, you might choose to step back from making content for a while and that's okay. That's okay too. Um, I mean, I, I don't moderate my comment sections very heavily at all. Uh, so there, there is a lot of negativity and death threats and, and all of that kind of horrible stuff. But I personally don't, don't get too bothered by it but i at the same time i don't want to i don't want to dismiss it as saying like yo just just get over it grow a thick skin because that's yeah. for some people that's not going to be a sustainable solution absolutely yeah so so on top of all of these roles you have ollie so obviously working as an f1 on the bma board creating content <laughs> when do you ever switch off do you ever switch off what do you do in those times um what does that look like I, I switch off too rarely. I think that's a, but, <laughs> but you know, th this is, this is the real problem is that medicine is kind of a bit of a meat grinder, isn't it? That can very quickly become all consuming if you, especially if you want to do something competitive, because I'm sure that there's analogs to lots of other industries, but you know, if you want a cardiothoracics training number, you know, or, or not, not that I do, I'm not, I'm not kind of that, that inclined or academic, but, but if you do, and there are what, six training numbers a year, the question is, is that the other people going for that role, 
are going to be gunning themselves to death 24-7 every single day. Um, and it's very easy to become caught up in the rat race. Um, however, it is still very important, I think, to spend time with friends, family, and loved ones. You know, I was down this this past week, had some time off, I was visiting my girlfriend uh, down in Leicester and just spending time away from medicine, which I don't do as often as I could or should. She's very understanding because she, she's a final year med student who's who's about to start as an F1 in August. So she she gets it and is the same. You know, she she's in a rat race of her own. So we we temper each other's expectations, but but it is so so important, I guess. In terms of hobbies and things, I'm a musician. Um yeah, which which I really enjoy. I've got um a couple of guitars sat sat back over there. So even if it's just 10, 15, 20 minutes a day of sitting and practicing and learning a new song or something. Um, I, yeah, I think you've got to have, well, ideally as many things as possible that aren't medicine. <laughs> yeah. But if you, if you have one or two that you can do regularly, I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. I think um, we're so caught up in this rat race. So for us, me and Ams, we were kind of budding surgeons. And you can imagine the portfolio of yeah. medical school publications, flying out to Greece for a weekend course and, you know, basic tuition courses by the Royal Colleges, right? And it was just gone through. Just try to get to consultancy as much as possible. And then you mm. kind of start working, realize things are thinking. And their advice we give is have hobbies. Don't let any of those go at the expense of trying to become a consultant or gunning to get a particular post in a certain deanery because you think it makes you a better doctor it doesn't that's mm. another pet peeve of mine where we get messages saying oh, i didn't get my london allocation do you think i'm going to be a good enough doctor that is a myth i don't know where that came from that you have to work in london otherwise you're not a good doctor mm. we both you know <laughs> in Coventry, so. you've moved to Newcastle. <laughs> yeah no you'd be surprised especially it's it's obviously we're to king's right king's is south thames they've got all yeah, of these yeah. nice fancy hospitals in central london and you can imagine you're in med school for five six years you know london and then all of a sudden to hear that you've been moving to scotland or wales and then all of a sudden you're like mm. wait a minute like i'm at a disadvantage um so yeah one thing i want to make clear is it doesn't matter where you're a doctor a doctor is a doctor and i genuinely believe people average out over the first two years of foundation training mm. um but you have to also remember though what what you want to do what you really and truly want to do inside um, when you when you put to aside the things that massage your ego and stuff, you'll find that naturally you'll start to enjoy and naturally you start to pursue that more. So, for example, for us, we said we wanted to be a surgeon, but we, we didn't want to do all the things that came with becoming mm. a surgeon. Right. Going into theatre, I guess, after hours on your days off. I know people who love the idea of being on, in, in theatre instead of, say, being in a cinema. <laughs> That's the, it's the whole thing. It matches them. Um, so I think it's all about also finding the things that fit you and is authentically you and that you genuinely love. And I think that's when you start to realize that you, you might say, oh, I, I don't switch off as much, but that's maybe because all of the things you do, Ollie, actually just fits you naturally. Um, so that's why. So, yeah, interesting point on, on that. And I think you you mature as well to a point, I think. This is, this is something that I've actually been discovering myself actually through my f1 year which is um i mean it's fairly public like i, I want to be a neurosurgeon right so that's 
I was going to come on yeah, to that. Yeah. It's amazing. But, but that's what I want to do. And that's kind of maybe since my second or so year of medical school. Um, and so that would have been my first clinical year when a, a neurosurgery reg at uh, Coventry um, Hospital kind of took kind of took me under her wing, if you like, and was was a mentor yeah. figure from early on. Um, slightly perhaps colored by the fact that the book that actually convinced me in the end to go to medical school was Henry Marsh's book, which, yeah, which I think is a a common story actually for for many people. But so that's what I want to do. But, and now since I've started working as an F1 and you start to speak to more doctors about their careers, like it's, it's no secret now that neurosurgery training is essentially like a disaster right now it's I, I don't think you could you could design a more kind of dysfunctional system just in the fact that like there's no training jobs there's no consultant jobs trainees can't get enough operating time and oh, yeah. so despite despite the fact that we have all of these people who would probably make absolutely amazing neurosurgeons and and deal with the huge i mean the the backlog especially for elective spine work is like two to three years it's crazy um it's the government have made it quite clear that they are not interested in actually doing anything about that so yeah so because of all that like i said before i think it's important to be pragmatic and to have backups so this has forced it with me a lot of reflection about what it is I like, what it is I actually want, and what do I, what mm-hmm. do I think is going to make me fulfilled? And mm-hmm. this is, I think, something that I would, for for all of those med students that are like dead set, like you say, on doing surgery or on doing, yeah, something in particular, is we always have to be mindful that we don't know what we don't know, mm-hmm. and there are so many yeah. areas of medicine that you just get no exposure to at all. Mm-hmm. So. I've actually become a lot more aware of interventional radiology since since leaving medical school, especially neurorads, looking at the kind of neurosurgical landscape and how much of that work has gone to rads and what the career pathway looks like and how good training is for radiology trainees and so many consultant jobs. And yeah it's so many opportunities yeah it's it's really difficult because on the one hand i'm still of the mind where i've like i still want to be a neurosurgeon and then it's what i want to do and what my cv you know is all geared towards but yeah. on on paper i know it's a really bad idea <laughs> yeah. if if yeah. you draw your pros and cons list this is one of the things and i think that's that's okay to a point but i think we do have to be objective with yeah, ourselves yeah. and i love yeah and i'm happy super happy you said that i think a lot of people especially the ones that are kind of excelling academically clinically doing one exams they have this set specialty in their head and they do everything about it at the expense of many things relationships love you know a, a healthy mindset and i see yourself as someone driven someone knows what they're talking about very pragmatic and to hear you say despite wanting to do neurosurgery despite having a cv geared for it you are still open to exploring other kind of parallel streams Mm. right Mm. and i think that's very important for medics to hear especially medical students because i have a feeling people get it in their head and they do whatever it takes to get there only to later realize maybe they don't like it anymore 
but they were so caught up in it in this finite end goal that soon after they're like, oh, it's not what I thought it would be. I've sacrificed X, Y, Z, um, and I'm very unhappy. So it's very good you said that actually. Well, I mean, it's it's just one of those. I'm I'm hopeful about this, right? I, I this isn't something I know for a fact, but it's it's something that. I, I would hope to see the good in an admissions process that if if I were if I were a board in in charge of selecting trainees for core surgical training or for you know orthopedics or for radiology or peds or anything else it's that question of would would you rather have someone who has been gunning for that one specialty kind of since day one of medical school and is ultra dedicated to it maybe that is what you want i don't know or would you rather have someone who has you know perhaps a bit more of a varied cv but still ticks all the same boxes as that person so they score the same number of points but perhaps has a few papers in something else so they've done a taste a week in something else and, and it's actually saying look i've actually spent a bit of time exploring the other options and i am actually after that process still convinced that orthopedics is what i want to do i would i would argue that that trainee is much more likely to actually finish training and be motivated i don't know whether that's whether that reflects reality or not but it's i i would be wary of almost looking a little bit um tunnel vision tunnel vision no, yeah definitely yeah. agree and i um me and ams had a conversation despite the issues despite all the things that are perhaps you can say are going wrong in the system. Long term, we do feel like it will, there will be benefits. Things will start to sort itself out. I don't know how, and I can't say mm. when, but I do have firm belief in it. Mm. And I think what I'm starting to say to people is saying, don't necessarily quit medicine, take a break yeah. from medicine, explore whatever you want to do. If you want to work in a med tech startup, go do it. You want to look them for a few months to earn, like you mentioned, do it but don't write off medicine yet just because mm. i feel we're on the cusp of change if you know what yeah. i mean like i don't know if it's going to collapse or break down but i think there's a lot of good happening and, and i'm super excited to to look forward to it um what what's ollie what's your forecast of what the nhs's future looks like do you is it a positive one where do you think we'll see positive change oh, oh, or do you think we're, we're all going to be on a first class ticket uh, well, economy class straight to Australia. <laughs> <sighs> That's really hard. It's really hard. And and obviously, I can only say this through my very inexperienced medical lens, obviously. But I think what's clear to everyone, like I think there are some some base truths that we can all usually agree on, regardless of your perspective, which is that the NHS in its current form is completely unsustainable and it relies on it relies on the goodwill of the people that work within it to prop it up most of the time unpaid. And, you know, case in point, the referral that I went in to do today where, where I'd handed over this referral that needed doing on Friday, it didn't get done. So they rang me today saying, you need, basically, you need to do this referral like now, otherwise the patient won't get seen. And obviously I want that patient to be seen. And if the only alternative, like if I, I could, because I'm on annual leave, choose to do nothing and, and not even look at my emails or, or whatever. But 
it's the right thing to do, right? Because that patient needs to be seen, but that patient will never know that I came in on my day off to sort all of that stuff out. And that's, that's not a burden that they should ever have to deal with. That's not their problem. But, but the fact that the NHS in it, it, the model relies on things like this in order to work is, is just very poor. Um, secondly, it obviously massively underpays its staff or virtually every level. And especially, I suppose with the, as people are waking up, as, as we've said, the, for many people, it's simply not going to be worth it. I think the question is, is how much of this is calculated, right? And how much, how much is, uh, how much is, is a socialized system simply struggling to compete in a market world? Um, and I, it, it's, it's, the question is, does the government have the money ultimately to right all of the wrongs? You know, could, could it, could it restore every junior doctor's pay overnight? Probably. Um, could it massively expand training numbers to get more people to consultancy and stop this ridiculous backlog into, into middle grades? Maybe. Um, I don't know, but all we can say is what is very very clear is that the current government via the money that goes to the department of health and then to health education england who actually is in charge of all of these things have simply made it clear that it's not something that they're interested in and and this is one of the reasons why i think it's so important to be vocal about this more for the benefit of the public than anything else is you know you're being told that greedy doctors want to be paid more and work less and your GPs are hiding away from you and refusing to see you. And when the reality is simply that the government almost, you know, they want Mercedes Benz level service, but are not willing to pay for <laughs> yeah. it. They're willing to give you a Ford Literally. Focus. It really hurt when I heard all the comments about the GPs because the GPs are booked from top to bottom in terms of their calendars and everyone was saying they're hiding when they were not hiding one bit they were in their room seeing everything and anything that was booked um but yeah it was absolutely slated upon them they were made scapegoats yeah. at one point i remember they were really slated away aren't weren't they yeah. um it's which is horrendous it really is a shame because we work in a &E, or well, i work in like a mini a &E for frailty and a lot of them came in and the first thing they said yeah my xyz gp is so crap or whatever and you're thinking that's my colleague you know we know how hard they graft mm. but you have to maintain a level of professionalism yeah. and kind of convince them and they will never believe you because there's a divide between hospital doctors and gp doctors in, in the in the public perception right like, oh you're an a, a doctor you're here you're sorting my mum out but that gp i've been trying to get an appointment for two weeks and now she's coming after having a fall it's so bad and changing mm. that perception is so hard no matter what you do. yeah i i try to like you say it's really hard to maintain that level of of you have to maintain confidence in the profession but increasingly now over the last maybe the last two or three months as things have been getting worse when people have been um when patients have, have understandably they've maybe felt let down about a, a misdiagnosis in gp or 
you know, my GP said I probably had a urine infection or something, and then it turns out I've got something else. I do try and have that sort of, well, you know, what, what you've got to remember is that I've got a lot longer than 15, 10, 15 minutes to spend with you. And I can order like any investigation that I want, whereas a GP will wait, you know, I, I can have your bloods back within 15 minutes if I want, but that GP has probably got to wait a week or whatever for for the for blood count and yeah try and try and do what i can i suppose but yeah it's it's hard no it's hard it, yeah. that that job is incredibly hard i don't know if you've got it as a rotation no, for your f2 um <laughs> when i did it uh, i went from a e to gp and i just found that a e was so much easier i had ct out of at my hands x-rays bloods I had everything whilst as a GP I had just the vitals that I could personally do by the table side in the 10 minutes and then I had to make a decision. Uh, thankfully, obviously as an F2 I had a supervisor and everything, I discussed cases but without them I can imagine it being super, super stressful. Um, so yeah, no, absolutely respect to the GPs. Yes, yeah, 100%. I, I genuinely, I remember speaking to um, Thomas Watchman some time ago, the guy who set up zero mm. to finals mm. yeah, about yeah. this and I I genuinely was like hands off Tom you know I know, I know a lot of people especially in medical school there's this dialogue of sort of do med school do f1 f2 train as a gp and be done like live la vida locum forever <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I I cannot I cannot fathom putting myself through gp training like and that that you know I'm sure you guys get it like from someone who wants to train as a surgeon and it's the same like that sounds bad, <laughs> like as an experience, but God, I I cannot. I I just I I don't even know whether I'm intellectually capable. But and and taking responsibility as well, like you said, you you've got you've got a set of obs and you've got your hands and a stethoscope, <laughs> and you know maybe an ophthalmoscope and a tendon hammer or something, but. <laughs> yeah, I think they, they they deserve a lot more credit. Uh, but yeah, I think we've kept you long enough, especially in your annual leave. Uh, so just to kind of wrap it up, what does the future look like for you? What are your plans going forward? Sure. I know people are, are you going to stay in the NHS? Are you planning to leave? Obviously you can't because you're, you're on a BMA medic, but... What, what what's your thought process what are you thinking now having seen the system yeah. knowing what the future look like what's 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 happening to you in your future sure i mean for me I, i've got no intention as it stands of leaving the uk just you know i've got my family here and and uh, my girlfriend's family are here and so she she would be in the same um situation and and, and i do i do believe in the nhs as an institution and i i think that we can we can try and do what we can to change things. Um, and that won't be the right thing for everybody. Uh, so I'm going to finish up foundation. I've got several more exciting rotations up here in, in Newcastle, which I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to. Um, I'm going to take a year out. So I, as with many others, do not plan on going straight into training. I want to I actually want to go and work as a neurosurgery SHO for a year. Uh, just as kind of a trust grade um, because I don't have a job in it as a uh, as a junior they're actually quite few and far between and uh, I want to make sure that it's the right thing for me um, 
and if it's not then fine you know i'll i'll think about doing something else but uh i'd rather make that informed choice so do that do that f3 year as as an sho and then reassess you know get my exams done um got my part a in september to look forward to um and uh and see what happens yeah you, you know i'm i'm uh whether I want to remain an academic or not, so but in the academic post, I'm still yeah. unsure. Especially, I mean, my my AFP is in uh, education research rather than neurosurgical mm. research. It's an area that really interests me. So, you know, mm. do I, if I was going to be an academic, would I go into education? Would I go into the neurosciences? Would I do a mix? Would I yeah. not be an academic at all? And try and you know simply be a good clinician and surgeon uh i i don't know <laughs> you will see what oh, happens it's good wicked wicked we're, i love it you're open, the future, but you're open. Um, you're open to all and informed decisions is the way to go forward especially with the way things are do not do anything blindly to to all our listeners i saying um be very informed because the last thing you want to do is regret something only because you didn't take the time out and take a step back and reflect and be true mm. to yourself. Um, but no, thank you, Oli, for taking the time out to speak to us. Thank you for our listeners. Uh, we hope you all stay well and we'll see you all soon.